Good morning. Listen to another parable. That was the beginning of our gospel reading. Hear another story. Read one more book. Stories, books, parables. They are mirrors when readers see their own lives reflected in the pages. Books are windows when they allow readers a view of lives and stories that are different from their own. And books become sliding glass doors when readers feel transported into the world of the story and when they feel empathy for the characters. This is the argument of Rudine Sims Bishop, who is Professor Emerita at Ohio State University and has been referred to the mother of multicultural children's literature. Mirrors of our own lives, windows to others, or sliding doors to different worlds. She says this with regards to representation of stories and characters and ways of providing for marginalized people, especially children, to find themselves in stories. The stories of Jesus function in similar ways. For his audience, originally mostly marginalized people living in the Roman Empire, to find themselves, to understand God, in new ways, and to think about the kingdom of heaven as something new and unexpected and the opposite of empire as they knew it. Jesus tells parables for the same reasons. His stories are mirrors to ourselves, windows into the lives of others, or sliding doors that take us to other times and places and situations. They tell us a bit about the people Jesus was teaching across time and space, which includes us. And they tell us a bit about God and a bit about the reign of God. And maybe you are like, yes, yes, we know all of this. We know what a story is, and we did not need you to tell us that on a Sunday morning. But listen to another parable, says Jesus. So a landowner owns some land and sets up a nice vineyard situation with a fence and a wine press and a watchtower and, of course, some healthy, beautiful grapevines. He finds some other people to take care of the land, and then he bounces off to another country. Why does he leave? We don't know. Presumably he's busy with other vineyards to plant and properties to take care of. He's very important, and why are you asking these questions? Who are the tenants then? Well, it turns out they are not trustworthy folks. At harvest time, the landowner from afar sends messengers, servants, enslaved people to collect at harvest time. And in a surprise turn, the tenants beat and kill these messengers. So eventually, the landowner sends his own son, thinking they will respect my son, surely. And now we can see how this is going. The landowner is likely representative of God, God the creator who has created a beautiful, careful world for us. And we are the tenants of the earth, the caretakers of the vineyard. 
And the messengers that God keeps sending are all of the prophets and those who were not well received, those who were ostracized and harmed and worse. So in this story, Jesus tells of a frustrated creator yearning to gather a harvest of fruits, of the fruits of the Spirit, not grapes, but love and joy and peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. God, creator of all, lovingly, carefully setting up all that we need for this life of flourishing, trying to reach out to us, sending messengers not been effective. At this point in the gospel, John the Baptist has been arrested and then beheaded, after all. So the father sends his son to the people. And because we know the stories of Holy Week and Good Friday, we know where this is going. We can see the comparison shaping up. But for those listening to Jesus' words, they were rightly surprised and properly horrified that the tenants took one look at the landowner's son and decide to take all that he has, including his life. So to those who are listening, and by the way, Jesus is in the temple right now, And so the crowd includes the chief priests and the Pharisees. This is also, by the way, after the triumphal entry of Jesus that we celebrate on Palm Sunday. The crowd has praised him with loud hosannas. He's ridden in on a donkey. He's been hailed as a king. He has also already been to the temple, took one look at the money changers, at the financial abuse and exploitation, and flipped over the tables. Flipped tables over. That is frowned upon. He has also cursed a fig tree for not having any fruit, which could be metaphorical, or maybe he was just really hungry. But now, after all of that, Jesus is back in the temple. And so you can imagine that the atmosphere is a little charged. I'm surprised they even let him back in. The temple authorities are not happy. They're on edge. We hear they want to arrest him. And now Jesus is telling the story that is laced with violence. When the landowner returns, Jesus says, and sees that his son has been killed, what should he do? When Jesus asks this, the response then, their answer, is one of impulsivity and violence. Kill him. Crush them to a miserable death like they deserve. It is the people here, not Jesus, who voices this idea of God's judgment in the form of vengeance. At this point, if we go back to the idea of story as a mirror or a window or a door, the Reverend Richard Spaulding, who's a Presbyterian pastor and theologian, has wondered about considering this story as a drill, something with a sharp bit that digs, as he says, through layers of denial to the level of recognition. In this case, the drill has gotten us to this level of violence, retaliation, which just escalates the cycle. But if the drill gets down past 
these levels of violence and retaliation, we get to a place of repentance, a place finally where the water of new life can well up. But we have to move through it. We have to get through this state of violence. We also need to remember that it is the audience, the listeners, who are the ones that suggest vengeance. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a life for a life, it's only fair. And if not execution, perhaps a life sentence in prison would work. But Jesus always surprises and reverses what we think. God will risk violence to be in relationship with us. But God will not require violence. God will not meet violence with further violence. And the punishment that is laid out here is not punitive so much as it is a consequence. Jesus says that the tenants will be removed from the vineyard, that the kingdom of heaven will be taken away from them. He is showing us what we miss. When we fail, when we sin, when we fall short, we miss out on the full and fruitful flourishing of life that God has in mind for us. The Pharisees, the chief priests, those who will plot to arrest Jesus, the crowds who will turn their loud hosannas into cries of crucify him, even the disciples who will betray and deny and scatter in fear, and each one of us who does the same. We are not met with threats or retaliation, or harm. Separation from the kingdom is the natural and inevitable result if we choose that violence. Just like the loss of light is the inevitable consequence of stepping into a shadow. And it isn't a consequence that God chooses for us. Instead, we miss out. We do not get to become our full selves. We do not get to live into all that God would have for us in the full reign of Christ. For those who choose violence and retaliation, Jesus says the kingdom of God will be taken away from you. For those who would crush in response, Jesus says the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. To those who want to give then the vineyard away, Jesus will take it away himself, not as punishment, but as a consequence. They will not be put to death, they will not be harmed, but they will lose out on their own opportunity to produce the fruits of justice and mercy and righteousness and love. And for those who would kill Jesus, as this story foreshadows his own death, we know that the consequence of that is not punishment. The result is that Jesus then defeats death. Jesus rises again. Jesus continues to live. Those who would have wished to silence him instead helped to write the most powerful and remarkable story of all time. Thanks be to God. Amen.